You're listening to Startup and Onward, an ongoing conversation with product sales and marketing leaders working to align teams and supercharge growth. Join us as we give you an insider's look into the real-world experience of leaders seeking the growth stage by empowering their teams to navigate the Bermuda Triangle of product, marketing, and sales. I'm your host, Josh Taylor. You can have a lot of hypotheses early on before you come to market. And then the faster you can get something in people's hands and in market, you're going to learn whether you're on the right or the wrong path. Hey, everybody. We have a great, great episode for you today. I hope you are as excited as I am to really hear this dialogue with Nicole Capuana. Nicole comes to us with a broad experience when it comes to product development, user experience, UX design. How do you unpack and unearth those strengths inside of a core product or a service that really need to be leaned on when you're going to market? And how do you help teams break out of those calcified silos that so easily develop? And as you're doing that, how do you show teams how to work inside of constraints? How do you define those constraints so that you can get teams to think creatively and to collaborate more? Love the dialogue. Hope you will as well. Nicole, so excited to have our conversation today. I am Thanks for joining us. to be here. <laughs> All right. I love it. <laughs> As a way of getting started, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what led you to today? Great. So I'm Nicole Capuana, and I guide people and teams to unlock their true awesomeness and create great products. From Fortune 100 companies to startups, I've been designing digital products and leading teams for over 20 years. Got my start in the dot-com days back in Seattle, so it was pretty much impossible not to land in tech. I spent most of my career in UX design. I built a small boutique agile design and development consultancy on a boat. I co-authored a book on how modern software teams work. I co-founded a startup that tried to take down the paper business card and put people in control of their personal information. I'm co-inventor on two patents for cloud contact management. I've helped many organizations untangle people, process, and technology, which we'll talk a little bit about later on in this conversation. I've been a national speaker on how to rapidly ideate and test ideas. I co-founded a nonprofit to get more girls into tech. And today, I am the digital product leader for Progressive Life, which is a new business for progressive insurance. We built a term life insurance company from the ground up in three years, which was no small feat with a team of 10 and a global pandemic. My team today is up to 24, and we're in five states and plans to expand. I'm also an adjunct professor at Case Western Reserve where I coach students in the executive MBA program through their capstone project using design thinking. And for the official disclaimer, I am here today to talk as Nicole. I'm not representing Progressive. I'm not representing Case Western Reserve. I'm just here to have a conversation. Awesome. Well, I am excited about the conversation because for our listeners who just listened to you walk through that list, it's not a boring experience you've had, Nicole. <laughs> Quite an, <No>. eclectic, <laughs> an eclectic journey. And one of the things I've always valued about your approach is that you are constantly curious. You're constantly listening. You're constantly probing a little deeper beyond what people are talking about and just want to hear more. And maybe we can even start there. What, what do you think is the key to helping move product teams forward that you found? 
It's a couple different things. I think the secret sauce is combination of design thinking, lean and agile. But underneath all of that, though, is making sure you have a really good team culture. And I've been very fortunate for the last, I would say, 15 years to have really amazing teams and work in a really remarkable way as strong, healthy teams and happy teams. And so at the end of the day, it's about the people, right? You come together and form a team. And with my team today, I am very much in the boat of we are a team first. We can solve any problem if we are a team and we are a great team. We're in this together. And that that to me is what helps teams build great things or do great things. Yeah, it feels like such a simple answer culture, but oftentimes, I mean, you've had the experience of being in a variety of different environments, some of which we've shared the experience in. And if culture is so key to moving products forward, what in your experience is what holds people back? I mean, oftentimes when we're talking about sales, product, marketing, it's not just three different name departments. You're often talking about three different silos. And what in your experience has led to those silos and how do you start to break them down so that you have a unified team? Being intentional with your team and talking to each other, right? Like that I think is probably the biggest problem is people don't talk to each other. Everybody gets in their lanes and they do their thing and they do their specialty and they don't stop and say, well, we're actually all together. It's our combined talents, right? That are moving things to forward. And so to you've got to reach across those silos. You've got to try to stop those silos from forming in the first place. But if they are, like start to break them down. And to do that, you got to start talking to each other, not just talking to each other, but really trying to understand what the everybody's role is and what the work is that it is on the table or ahead so that you have empathy for what the what everybody's doing and for their roles and how they contribute into, again, delivering a great product or great service. When you say their role, is is it a role in the context of the market or the people that they're serving? Because I, I think oftentimes teams can get distracted by their administrative role. Like, I know my job, I know my responsibility, but they kind of lose sight of the reason for being. I think people stick to their their box and say they're going to do their their role. So whether it's a developer or whether it's a salesperson, like this is their job. But at the end of the day, I tell this with my team and my family even is like, you got to roll up your sleeves and get the job done, even if it's not your job, right? So we're in this together. Sometimes you've got to get out of your lane or get out of your comfort zone to help move something along or collaborate, right? Like collaboration is key to moving things forward. And you've got to set any ego, any like preconceived notions aside and sort of just say, let's get in this and let's do this together and let's solve this thing together. What what are the first indicators to you when you start going into an environment where you may hear, hey, we're on the same page. Everyone's on the same page. We're all going the right direction. But there are certain maybe words or actions or things that you're seeing that you're like, let's push on that to see if that's really true. Yeah, step one is usually asking people individually to tell me where we're going or what the what where, you know, what they're trying to do. Because that usually reveals that people are not on the same page. 
Mm. When and you then, say where they're going, like as a company, like where is the, what's the mission of the organization? What's or the mission the or even the work at hand? Like, what are we trying to do and why? Everybody should be able to articulate that. And if they can't, then that means either like information's not coming often from the top down or maybe from the bottom up to other people, right? But like having everybody share in a very safe one-on-one sort of setting, it, you know, hey, tell me, <laughs> tell me more. Tell me what's going on. Where are we trying to get to? What are we trying to work on? Why is that? And if they can't say it or you start to hear like lots of different things and that's the signal to say let's get more people together and we have to have a a conversation all like align right Mm -hmm. there's a drawing that's popular and agile where it's like you know everybody says they have a shared understanding and it's like one person's thinking a square one person's thinking a circle and one person's thinking a triangle but until you talk until you get together around the same table do you then realize oh you know what we're creating a star Hmm. Yeah, that's good. So you're first going through on an individual basis in a safe space so that the people that are talking to you feel like, hey, I can just unpack what I'm seeing. And then after you've individually seen where people are at, if there's misalignments or if there are alignments, the next step is to bring them into a group setting where they can kind of reveal some of the different perspectives or how do you how do you establish trust? in going into that next stage of revealing to the team that maybe there's not alignment. Well, I'm thinking of when we work together, I think after basically doing a listening tour, right? Like talking to people and hearing from their perspectives, what's going on, there's themes that are going to emerge. So it's not like one person who's out of whack or one person saying something that's different than others. It's, you know, there's there's a theme that emerges and maybe many themes, right? And so then those themes, you know, take to the leaders and say, these are the things that have emerged. I think we need to do some sort of collaboration or gathering together. And that takes some intentional design as to what that group session is, right? Like you just don't bring people together and be like, we need to talk. Right. <laughs> people will be like, no. We'll very um, quickly devolve into a... <laughs> Yeah. So (laughs) energetic, but unproductive conversation. Yeah. So then that becomes maybe a workshop type of setting to try to align some people around where, where we're going. And, you know, another way to do it or to get some alignment is to do a simple retrospective. And again, it's about bringing people together and, and reflecting on like where we are, what's working, what's not working in those in those themes that maybe have emerged that we can get a little more shared understanding and empathy. And then from that, can we pick one or two things that we say we're going to do next? One simple action we can try to put into place that then like a series of small steps will sort of get us more of where we need to be. That's great. You You've constantly been in a variety of different environments that have needed to not only build a product or a service, but to then commercialize it. Like it's not enough to just build something that people want. It ultimately needs to connect to some commercial need. It's got to drive revenue. It's got to do something along those lines. Are there any things that you've discovered along the way that product teams specifically can often miss about the need to commercialize or the way to actually listen to the market when it's giving feedback about how to evolve a service, how to evolve a product. 
in a way that helps empower commercialization? Or is there a way that commercialization actually validates the product market fit? Well, I always encourage teams to try to get something out as quickly as you can. Don't wait for perfection. Don't wait for everything. That's where I see teams and companies slow slow down and maybe spend a lot of time doing something that in the end is not necessarily what the market wants. And being connected to those customers in the early, early days, right? Like what need do they have? What is the problem they have? What? Why is it a problem? How are they trying to solve it? How are you going to solve it and meet those needs? I always tell people when I when you design really great things, it's like nobody really notices because you're like, they use it and they it's like it meets their needs and then go on with their lives, right? right? Right. So it's really deeply understanding like what it is that the the people you're creating for what they need and why is it that 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 need is there. And so you can have a lot of hypotheses early on before you come to market. And then the faster you can get something in people's hands and in market, you're going to learn whether you're on the right or the wrong path. So, you know, my, back when I had a startup, we we had a hypothesis that our, our, our customers were, you know, you and I, like everyday business people. But once we got to market, we found an unmet need that had not revealed itself in prior conversations with high-end retail salespeople. And they adopted our technology rather rapidly. And it was like, oh, like, I'm so glad we got out there and we learned that there's this, this need in this market. And it wasn't quite where we were or where we thought we would get to. And I look in hindsight and say, we, we took too long to get there. We could have learned mm -hmm. that sooner. And had we learned that sooner, it would have changed the trajectory, one, of the product and of the feature development and ultimately the lifespan of that company. What, what do you, when you say you should have been out there sooner or earlier, what do you feel that should have been different? Well, I think we got hung up on like, like thinking we needed a sort of a, a complete feature set mm -hmm. uh, to meet some, meet these needs when we could have carved it back to like just the core thing and, and, and gotten it out and, and then continue to iterate around it, which may have led us to some of these other features or may have led us to different features. You know, for the last three and a half years, I've been building a life insurance company. And there's only so much you can cut to the bone because it's a regulated product. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and it killed me that it was taking so long to get to market. But the, you know, like the sooner you can get out, then you're going to learn all the things that could go wrong, all the things that you could do differently. And then, yeah, so like the sooner you can deliver something and know that it's not going to be perfect, you're likely going to want to redesign it and re-architect it or re-engineer it or position it slightly differently, then like you can learn. Like, so it's like, how do you get to market to learn as quickly as you can is really the driver for, for advice I give any teams, right? Is get out there. <laughs> One, in the beginning, get out of the building and go talk to people. And then two, get your product in people's hands and start to learn from it. It's less mm -hmm. important in the early days to maybe like, bring in a ton of revenue, right? Like, like learn and then build from that. How do you convince people to get over the fear of that? That's like jumping off of a cliff for a lot of people of like, I built this thing that I love and now I got to give it into the customer's hands. And what if they hate it? Da, 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 da. I guess in general, I usually try to, I'm a pretty safe person, right? To jump off that cliff with, but encouraging people to take that step. It's like, you've got it. You've got to get out there and learn. 
and it's okay. It's you, you are going to redo things and that's to be expected, but let's learn. Otherwise you continue to invest a ton of time and, and money and energy into something that might be not worth it. Is there inherent inside of the agile process, a way for teams to get over that fear? I often feel like so many people love to use the phrase agile or the not a phrase is a word, but I mean, like the philosophy of agile. But when you really look under the covers, you're like, oh, this is not agile. Yeah, that's why I think it's more of an embracement, bracing of the mindset of agile of, you know, let's one change is going to happen. So let's be able to adapt to change rapidly or as quickly as we can. Let's collaborate. Let's spend less time on documentation. Not to say documentation is not important, but like do do the things that let you move fast. And then, you know, you'll, you'll, at time, you will be accruing debt that you'll have to pay at some point. But if the thing to do first is to learn, then to do whatever is the simplest thing to get out the door and learn. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's not even, you know, because I'm in a digital product world, sometimes it's not writing software, right? Like it's, can you do some sort of concierge service? Can you, you know, create a a minimum sort of product that maybe you only give to 10 people, but like with 10 people, you don't need to start with, you don't need to build account creation. You can do that all behind the scenes and sort of give them something that they can go and and use and try. Right. And then from there, start to iterate and build what, what, what the need points to. I'm constantly (laughs) trying to figure out different ways with this because I see firsthand that different teams inside of an organization use different languages. It's like you're trying to develop a product that's in software and maybe the product leaders have a way of talking about it from the quote unquote business. And then you have the developers that are like, yes, but I need more detail inside of Jira so that I know exactly what I'm developing. Is there, are there some tactics or some strategies that you found that work to bridge that language gap where you're trying to get someone to be quick in developing a feature that's an MVP feature without providing a dictionary level of detail about the feature. Well, that sort of goes back to the silos, Josh. If you, you all have to come together, right? So, you know, the the work defining or the requirements sometimes are really loose and high level and just like a, a statement, right? And then it's gathering those people across functional team together and saying, okay, what does this mean? How can we do this? How can we do this as simply as we can? Let's let's have that conversation. And like in that conversation, in that collaboration, you're then able to align, one, align everybody. Two, <laughs> maybe you draw it out and you start to write some things out and, but there is this shared understanding, but everybody in that cross-functional team is focused like that's their thing that they're, together they're going to bring whatever it is, this feature to market. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying that there needs to be a group discussion with the people involved to say, hey, how could we do this in a more simple way? Not, Joe, you're going to figure this out and pass it over to Sally, who's then going to take the next step. It's you actually have to come into the room and collaboratively figure out what is it that we're really trying to achieve and how could we think about different ways in order to achieve that that requires the minimum amount of lift. Yeah, so in that type of setting, right, if I was with my team, I would say, 
we're going to do more of a workshop type of collaboration. And it might take a day, maybe it takes a week, but we're going to get together and we're going to say, okay, here's the problem we're trying to solve. How might we get there? And maybe do some ideation to go big because there's value of like going, like thinking like what would be ideal and then sort of snapping back to something that's like achievable or that maybe like to get to the ideal, you could slice it and still deliver value in increments. And so step one is get everybody together, do some sort of work, working ideation type of session, draw things out and then start to then say, okay, let's break this, this down. And it's maybe the way to think about it is like, it's like a loop. So when, you know, in the beginning, things are really murky and you don't know, it's like less is clear. And so to get some clarity, you've got to go around this loop of, you know, sort of like the build, measure, learn, if you will. But in those early days, you might have to do a spike. And maybe that's a spike on a business side. You need to understand what compliance needs or, you know, reporting needs or whatever might be from a business side of things. You might have to spike into that. A dev might need to spike into, well, how might we technically do this? And those spikes are a way to learn. Uh, and again, learn quickly. So then the group comes back together and it's like, hey, hey, this is what we learned. How does that inform the next loop around? How do we get sort of like, as you loop through things, things get tighter and tighter and clearer and clearer. And in the beginning, it's murky, like I said, but how do you start to bring some clarity? And then that gives you choices as to what you might be able to pursue. And so for all my teams, we work in one week sprints because you can't go too far in a week. You can't have somebody way off over engineering, over architecting, over designing and overthinking something. It's like they've, it's time bound. So they're going right. to, you know, go off for a day and they're going to spike into this thing and come back and share. So in the startup days, the, the cycle was super fast because that's all you did all day, right? Every day was like a, a loop. And are you um, waiting, are you waiting to the end of that sprint to come back to the team with the learnings? Or are you like, Hey, you're, you're spiking for a day. You're coming back and then saying, Hey, here's what we found. It's not necessarily a glamorous presentation, but you're just distilling the knowledge. <laughs> I would say come back as soon as you can, right? Okay. If, if the team, there's other things you can put in place that you're collaborating daily in small teams, it's really easy. You just, you know, roll your chair over to the person or you, you know, knock on the door on Slack and say, Hey, let's talk about this. You know, the more, the larger the organization, you know, maybe it takes a little more time, but the teams are still, you know, keep them small so that they can have that, you know, come back when you learn, right? You, you, we're going to get, we're not letting you go learn for a week. You said you can go do it in four hours, come back in four hours, tell us what you learned. Or if, you know, there's somebody else needs a little longer, well, let's meet in the morning and let's talk about what we learned. How does that change what we might do next? When you were talking earlier about that product that you were working on and how you wish you would have gotten out into the market quicker, was that about just scheduling the time to be out there to meet with a variety of different buyers or users? Was it about the who that was getting out in the field? We just didn't get enough of the team to meet with customers or was it something else? We, I mean, we got out and we talked to customers. We even had a panel. We had an alpha group of people and they were giving us good feedback, but I wished we had launched the bare bones version that still could have provided functionality, which we, I sort of our alpha group did have some feedback on. But again, they weren't in the end sort of the, the main sort of early adopter market. 
And so while they were giving us feedback, we weren't necessarily learning from the real world and and users. So I wish we had launched with, you know, in that case, it was the company trying to take down the business cards. I wish we had launched with like text or email your information. Then I could have learned really quickly instead of waiting for sort of a a fancier feature that we thought was going to be sort of the thing that distinguished us. And in the end, that was a distinguisher, but I, again, I wish I had gotten out the door sooner into the real market versus a collection of people who we had assembled to be sort of the alpha testers and then, you know, the beta testers. Obviously, you were mentioning earlier also that you're currently in a regulated space, so you couldn't necessarily launch at least what you would hope would be a minimum viable product. The <laughs> compliance <laughs> is a very different definition of viability. But there is a unique nature in that insurance space because there are often intermediaries like you're creating a product. Do you have anybody else selling that product to the then to the end users? Do you have to understand multiple layers of the actual influencer? And how did you take those previous learnings into the development of this product, even if it wasn't a direct apples to apples comparison? I encouraged the team to think about ways that we could learn again as quickly as we could. And so we did lots of experiments prior to even writing any code to get to, you know, our product is for the general population. So it was fairly easy to go find people. And I proposed other ways that we could learn that were ultimately not chosen to go down. And I can't go into too many details around that. So, you know, I, you know, regardless, there's, there's lots of ways this could have played out and there's lots of things you could stitch together to try to get into the market quicker, regardless of the company, you know, are there things that you can leverage that are, you know, you're using a assembly of different technologies possibly to sort of deliver your product. You know, you hear stories about things being run on a spreadsheet. And like, maybe, maybe that's the quick way to, you know, you're doing something concierge for people and it's, it's behind the scenes. You're using sort of general tools and that, you know, ultimately you're trying to build something that's obviously a digital product, but can you stitch together things from different companies? Yeah. I think it's in the book, the lean starter. They talk about, I think it's Groupon when they started, they were just like, basically had an email list. And then they were selling these discounts that they got from the restaurants that were in their own building. And then when people responded, they were like manually creating the gift certificate and then adding like a QR code and then just emailing it back to the person. Like, right. And that's not sustainable long term, right? right? Like that's not, that's not for scale, but they weren't trying to solve for scale on day one, right? They were trying to learn if people even wanted this thing. Do you think that that's a problem that you found other companies are running into that they're overthinking scale before they validated market fit? I think sometimes depends on the company, depends on their size, depends on, you know, obviously smaller companies are probably scrappier and willing to, to do, you know, to move a little faster. So, yeah, I think, but, but people in general can can get hung up in perfection or wanting to sort of like feel like it's totally polished and like it's like well no you're just get out there it's probably going to be ugly and like i said you're going to want to redesign it <laughs> redo it and just yeah. learn <laughs> right yeah the, the learning component is it can be hard to establish and, and get traction with but 
once you do hit that pivot or not pivot moment, but that breaking point inside of a culture where they do learn how to think and learn at the same time and iterate quickly, it is kind of a magic moment because you can see people like, oh, I don't have to think about everything in the backlog. I can just think about the things that are right now as a part of the sprint and I can give myself fully to that work without having this fear of this overhanging all these other to-dos that I have put into the backlog. You're almost trying to invalidate those things in the backlog by proving or invalidating what you're working on right now. Yeah, I think for my my team today, I think most of them would tell you that their prior experience was in longer cycles, right? Maybe two-week sprints, three-week sprints. And so when we formed and I said, we're going to do one-week sprints, we're not going to do any story card estimation, because there's, we shouldn't waste the time on that, right? It's like, let's learn as quickly as we can and let's pair, let's pair and collaborate all the time. And, you know, that was maybe hard for them at first to sort of wrap their heads around. But once we started doing it and they got to experience it and experience how freeing and how fast it was. And at the same time, like bringing us so tightly together, like they can't, they can't unsee it. So they're going to be forever changed into whatever other teams they go into because they've now witnessed, yes, you can do it this way. You can cross-functionally collaborate in a, a very radical way and you can keep things lightweight and you can stay very focused and deliver great things and be tightly aligned. And yes, let's work short, small feedback loops. And I guess, you know, I always tell them that they, they're forever changed. What do you think was the reason for it being hard to switch? Do they feel like they're leaving something behind? Like we don't have a North Star that we're really working towards? Or was it something else? I think it was just hard in that it was something they hadn't really experienced before, right? So people, when something's new, uh, you're going to have some people who just jump right on in. And then others who need to go through it a bit and experience it before they have maybe the full buy-in. And so not like, not that it was hard, they were all willing this, that's the step one, right? They were willing to give it a try. And, and now they, I don't think they would change every now and then I'm like, should we change? And they're like, no, and we're, this is good. What was the moment that you realized that it was starting to click, not just for the early adopters, but for those in the team that just needed that time to uh, see the results in real time? The early days were maybe a little different than now, where this feels like we've just been growing so rapidly. And I think every person takes needs a couple of months before they really sort of get into the groove of whatever whatever their role is and whatever team. But it happened rather quickly, I would say, with with the core team that started that after we were just moving so fast that they were like amazed at how much we had gotten through in in a month, right? Or in a week, and how how that just continued to feed itself where it was like, let's just keep learning and, and, and moving. And, you know, I think maybe a year in people expressed them that like, oh my gosh, like, this is amazing. This is, I can't go back. When you look back at your career and you may not feel this way, but I can tell you from the outside, <laughs> seeing you in action that I am just really inspired by how patient you are in the midst of all of the work that needs to be done, variety of different perspectives, debates, 
Is that something that came naturally to you? Is that something that you have developed over time? And how have you developed that sense of patience and, you know, being willing to follow any thread wherever it leads? That's a pretty complicated question, Josh. Don't necessarily view myself as very patient. And so I think there's something innate to who I am of that natural curiosity. And that's been my whole life, right? I was the eldest of four children. I always had to forge my own path and figure things that my parents were very much like figure it out. So I do, I figure it out, right? I'm always following all these little threads and that's the way my brain works is I'm like just sort of feeding in all these little data points that don't necessarily need to connect right now, but they'll eventually form some sort of connections. So that's just me and how my brain works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I think there is the sense of time, like the more experiences you have, the more patient you maybe become. I do feel like the older I get, the more I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to ease up. I'm going to let go because more emerges. Mm-hmm. And yeah. maybe now that I, because I am a parent, that too makes you do that, right? right. Where there's you know, just sort of gentle guidance for everyone, whether that's your team, the group you're helping, your family, your kids. It's true. There's definitely one thing about being a parent. It teaches you how to deal with a lot of curveballs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's that's helpful. And I know there's not necessarily one great answer at that, but I think the, I mean, in patience maybe you would say is maybe not even the right word, but I think it's your dedication to seeing something out that it's like, it, Hey, it's going to take time to, to get to where we ultimately need to be. So we might as well be quick so that we can have the patience to get to the long-term goal. It's almost, it's like a paradox. Like if you can be faster at launching in the small iterations and get feedback, you're going to have that little morsel of encouragement to keep going down the path of improving. If you don't have that small morsel of quick feedback, it becomes this Herculean task that you're trying to accomplish and you're probably going to burn yourself out. No one has the patience to launch like a waterfall project. It seems like over, you know, eight months or nine months, it's like everyone's like, well, where's that thing that you talked about nine months ago? Well, so you have to take a series of small steps. Right. And so whether that's iterating to build a product or to make change within an organization, you can't you can't get there fast. Right. To you've got to take a series of small steps and learn and reflect and inspect and adapt as you go on that journey. Some folks maybe want things to happen rapidly, but it won't stick. Right. You've got to sort of slowly, slowly get there. And maybe that's the patience that I have is to like, I got to lead folks there, but we can't, we can't run there. We got to take small steps together. My husband always jokes. It's like, he's like, you're the Pied Piper. Everybody's just following you. <laughs> it's like, well, but because I've created a safe space and we're going to take these, these steps together yeah, and right. we're going to get there. Like we'll get somewhere. I guarantee you it might not right. be exactly where we thought we would get, but we're going to get somewhere and we're going to learn along the way. And we're going to, learn and adapt and and course correct and we're all together we do this together how do you create trust at all levels in the organization for that amount of time to happen 
for traction to, well, for traction to exist, to be created when you have all these different constraints, like different organizations have a timing constraint or a budget constraint or staff capacity constraint. It's like, we just don't even have enough people to do the very thing that we need, or maybe not the right skill sets. Hmm. How do you understand what those constraints are so that you can work within them? I actually think that constraints are really good. Give you the bounds of what you're able to work within. And so one, you need to know what those constraints are. It's unfair for anyone trying to make change or, or do work to find out the constraint has been like behind a wall or hidden from you. Mm. So let's get those constraints out. And then within those constraints, there must, there, there will be, there is small things you can do. So how do we work with that constraint and say, how might we do this, whatever we're trying to do, but let's, let's start something and let's start something small. That's good. Are there any constraints that you feel either product or marketing or sales teams miss most often? Like it's easy to see the budget constraint, but maybe they're missing something else. Well, it's like time, money, right? Time, budget, and quality are the three points on the triangle. You right. can't have them all. And so what's the main one that's like less movable? And that's sort of like, then you know the others have to adjust. So maybe there's a, a lack of, of thinking that way. But yeah, again, I mean, this breaks the triangle of that image, but I've always felt that there's this fourth unseen constraint, and that is the risk tolerance of the leadership team. Sure. If, if there's a low risk tolerance, that can ultimately be that overhanging constraint that no one shares until the end of the project. Like you do all this great work, even if it's in an MVP way, it takes into consideration the budget, the timing, all the other things. And you get the moment of launch and it's that, ah, I think we need to get more feedback. We need to have more data before we get this thing out the door, which could be a a deflating thing if you've worked in a rapid iteration on that. Well, Have you seen that firsthand? There, there, or? Yes. Again, I can't talk too much about it, but <laughs> the, the there absolutely is a level of risk tolerance, right? And that's worth assessing or having articulated by the leaders of whatever group you're in. And and have that be known. One of the things, one of the tools I've used at multiple junctures is a risk matrix to say you know what are these risks how likely are they to happen how might we mitigate these risks and are they showstoppers right and so if you're always having that conversation and paying attention to that risk you're having the conversations like you're aligning and then you know like someone may say we absolutely cannot do this until this thing is done okay well, if that's the, the sticking point, we might have to spend a little more money. It might have to take a little more time to do that thing. Or maybe there's a way that we could live with live with the risk, but maybe we re release it to a small, small group where the risk is mm. smaller. Yeah. Right. So, you, but that's all part of the conversations you need to be having. And is one of your goals to get the team to at least be honest and face the transparent reality. I mean, the more I, transparent I, you can be on all fronts, the better. 
the more aligned you are, the more buying you get. And so let's make risk, you know, make work and, and the stuff visible. So having a risk matrix sort of makes some of those risks visible so you can have the conversations and you can have get start to get some alignment or understanding around what what must be done or what's your like we can we can do this one thing and it mitigates it and then we can move on so we've reduced the risk there yeah i think oftentimes and i tend to be an optimistic person i can definitely be negative at times just like anybody but there's almost this like darker side of being too optimistic as a leader because it, it you almost are not willing to face the reality of either the hard work or maybe the challenges that are in front of you so it could be hard to truly understand the constraints of the organization when you have leaders that are kind of like we can do it we can it doesn't matter we're going to get there it, it, what could seem like a strength could also be a weakness and it reminds me of liz wiseman in her book multipliers talks about how she similarly very positive person hey we can do this and she had somebody on her team come to her and say hey every time you say it's not a big deal we can do this it makes us feel like the hard work we're doing isn't really hard work and it is this is like some of the hardest work that we're doing and i need you to acknowledge that as a leader that, that we're doing really hard work right now this isn't just something that's you know uh, sitting around and being creative it's just like the hardest work we've ever done and for her it was like this eye-opening moment of oh my my natural tendency as a leader to be positive and to move the team forward i have to make sure that i'm speaking the language of the people that are working on my team i can't just speak through my my own lens a hundred percent you got to be self-aware <laughs> and aware of others and it's it's hard right to do i mean i'm naturally an optimistic person but you can't be pollyanna about it you also have to be pragmatic and practical and and recognize and recognize that you know there's been a lot of great work we did the best we could given the the time we had you know whatever you know the resources we had and where we are so yeah you've got to be aware and in in that case you just gave us an example it's really awesome she was open for feedback so as a leader you're welcoming that feedback because there's things we do all the time that we might not be aware of and having someone having the courage to come share something like that then it's like oh well thank you thank you i wasn't aware right. that yeah. i i that was not my intent and so now that awareness is there and you can be more mindful about how you communicate but communicating is hard how do you get the right balance of the yeah. words and the message and oh, yeah. will people listen will people read it and you know you have to say things you know multiple times for maybe the messages to be heard but you wouldn't want to be undermining your message if in that case right like not recognizing that the work was hard yeah you said something when we started working together years ago we were in a small group setting and you were kind of laying the ground rules or this ideation session we we're about to have and you said we're going to assume positive intent and it was a small comment but it was like a small comment that just like went into my brain and started like growing as something that i kept thinking about kept thinking about kept thinking about because i don't think i was self-aware that i was not assuming positive intent and then so it's so easy inside of organizations sometimes to be like I think they don't really want this to succeed or they're doing this for this reason. And it's, it's, it's like a sneaky 
mold <laughs> and like starts to grow inside of your mind and it poisons the team culture that you talked about earlier that you're really trying to create is there something that you're either seeing or doing to help turn the tide when you can kind of pick up that maybe teams don't have positive intent or well my team today one of our team norms is assume good intentions our number one team norm is to be yourself and usually when I introduce this to people on the team, I tell them I swear a lot. It's just me <laughs> being myself, but it makes that space safe, right? And it starts to build the the culture safety and the physical safety, the psychological, you know, ultimately getting to the psychological safety. You need physical yeah. and emotional to get to the psychological. So coming out of the gate and saying like, you know, always assume good intentions, right? We're all wonderful people where you have amazing talents, we're here together. No one is out to like, you know, we're adults. Like nobody should be like backstabbing anybody. Like we are, we're right. here together. So assume good intention. If something doesn't feel good, then that means you've got to speak up. You've got to go give that feedback or have a conversation one-on-one -on -one to say like, you know, that didn't make me feel very good. Or, you know, you're undermining our, our work that we've done. It's hard, it is hard work, you know? not a big deal makes it seem like you don't value what we we've been doing so that that has been very helpful for you know i guess my current team then for you know teams i may go in and help who maybe have had more of a culture of mistrust or less alignment and less healthy space or psychological safety is to go in and and maybe start with a retrospective for the team to say hey, we do some things well, right. what are they? Let's celebrate them. Yeah. And then there are opportunities that we could be better together. So what are those? But we always start the retrospectives and I always start it by reading the prime directive, which is, you know, assume that, you know, everybody has done the best of their abilities, given the time, given what they knew at the time, given the resources and the constraints. So like we're coming in, this is not a blame game. This is we all did our best. We're starting at that point. So what can be better? Mm, and that, yeah. go, that goes a long way to mitigating some of the, the prior, maybe feeling that there's not positive intents or good yeah, intentions. And I've seen it firsthand work. I mean, it just, I think sometimes you need to have someone model the behavior that you've been missing and lacking. And that simple modeling in front of you is all it takes to be like, I'm off. <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not on the right track. I need to get back on the right track. And it's been it's really good. You, you have a unique position because you're in the workforce. But then you're also a professor who's helping instruct and guide individuals who are either immediately going into their MBA or maybe going back to school. But no, um, these are all executives. So they're working professionals. OK, so they're all working professionals. Maybe that doesn't matter. <laughs> Maybe some working <laughs> professionals, you won't call them out by name, may seem like they just came out of school. Maybe. But, but how how are you preparing those leaders who do have experience in the real world, in their jobs, to do some of the things that you are talking about? Are there certain patterns you're trying to get them to see there are certain behaviors you're trying to get them to instill or mindsets that to adopt so they can bring back to their teams 
So the one thing I, I really love about the, the students I work with at, at Case is they come from all over all different backgrounds, no small potatoes, most of them as far as like their careers and their in their jobs. And I don't intentionally come into our coaching and our, our year together with the intent to change their organizations. But what ends up happening for most of them is through the work together, they come in and they have a problem that they're trying to solve. And because it's design thinking, we're going to step back and we're not going to fixate on what they think is the obvious solution. Mm. We're going to go talk to people, understand their needs. We're going to go look at data. It's going to feel murky and fuzzy and that's okay. It's all about really untangling the people and the process and the technologies. And, and by the time they get to the end of this class, they have some idea what they're going to do next. Some are ready to prototype something. Some have piloted things and it's rolling out, you know, larger, but they all get to the point at the end of the, of the year where they have been led through this process of problem solving and thinking about things that they can't unsee it again. Right. It's like they're, they now have a new way and they're forever changed. And so that change then carries into their organizations. You know, I had one student list last year who was like, you know, Nicole, I thought I was really great at problem solving. <laughs> and then I took this class and wow, wow. Like, this is amazing. This is so much more powerful. And I found, you know, I found a much better solution that was adopted easily and being rolled out across the, you know, again, a Fortune 100 company being rolled out. It's like, you know, it's really making an impact versus the way I would have thought about it before I would have given the, I would have just handed down the solution to others without really understanding the need and, and really understanding the problem. So mm. like, I'm not intentionally teaching those things. It depends on each student, what they need. So some do get some of my coaching that touches on a lot of the things we've talked about today. Others might not need that, right? But through their own individual products, or project, it's not a product, that by the end, they're, they're positioned to start to put a lot of these things into place. And I always end up with a, definitely a handful of students who very much want even more from the people side of things. Like, how do I help yeah. bring about culture change? How do I help my teams get better together? Is the light bulb moment for that student you mentioned just taking the time to sit in the problem space more rather than jumping to solutioning? sitting in the problem space and actually talking to people. Mm. As opposed <laughs> to being like the smartest guy in the room, like I could think of it. Yeah, well, I, I have a lot of doctors who tend to be very black and white and they're like, I'll look at the data, problem solved. Right, of course. And I'm like, no, no, this, <laughs> this class is not about that. <laughs> we are going to look at some data, but we're going to want to balance like quantitative and qualitative data and really sort of say like, does this help us understand the problem? Is this the right problem? Is there sort of a, a different problem or does it need to be reframed in a way? And then how might we solve that? That's awesome. In closing, we always ask everybody that's on the podcast, the same question, which is if you were to you know, give advice to a leader and they may be an inspiring leader, maybe they just have that natural gift and they don't have necessarily the position yet, something to start doing or stop doing that can help not only advance their career, but also advance the teams and the performance of the teams that they're leading, what would that be? I'm going to give you a two-parter. One, 
really thinking about what is the thing of value and the thing of value to deliver or work on right now. And, and within that value, what's the smallest thing we can do to deliver that value? That's sort of a mindset to start to adopt and help your team get around. So that you're always staying focused on the, the most valuable thing and solving in the simplest way. And then I think the second part of that is as a leader, you need to, or is it, I mean, really anyone, you need to make space. It's very easy for us to be chained to our desks and to Zoom calls and, and to be beholden to the calendar, but step away, get outside, go take a wander, like just be out and still. And that's where I feel more things emerge because you're sort of clearing things out, you're making space. And in that making of space, you'll have ideas, you'll have, you know, you'll get unstuck. And I think more people need to get outside and go take a wander. I could not agree more with that. <laughs> I, think, I think being outside is ironically more of a challenge now that we're remote. I feel like you're it's so easy to go through a day where you don't even get up from your seat. <laughs> if you're not really focused on being intentional, planning that into your, your schedule, which is scary. <laughs> it should be the opposite, but I think we just need to be intentional. And that's the key. What are you reading, listening to now that you're enjoying that you can share any books recently that you've come across or a podcast that you listen to that other people should be listening to? For years, I've had a practice of reading every night, two hours, lots of articles and podcasts and things like that. And right now I'm sort of taking a purposeful pause from that. And so the thing I'm reading or the thing or listening to rather is sound baths and listening in at different healing frequencies, vibrational frequencies to try to, again, make space and sort of re-energize. So I decided there wasn't enough sound baths in my life, so I'm trying to bring more of that in. But if people want something more practical, I'm a big fan of First Round Review and the Lenny's product podcast. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I think that the level setting and the well-being component of how you continue to give to your team is... It's like the, what is it? The rhythm of exhaling and inhaling. <laughs> you can't be doing one. You have to be doing both. And so being able to consume content, but then also to have no content where you can just be still and just be, I think is really, really important. Nicole, thank you so much for this time and the, and the dialogue. I love what you're doing with your teams and always love chatting with you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. This podcast is brought to you by Onward Insights. Onward empowers teams to uncover hidden bandwidth, deepen customer retention, improve user engagement, and drive conversations that lead to new revenue. Learn more at onwardinsights.com.